Jonah chapter 1. We're looking at verses 7 to 10 today as the Holy Spirit's assignment for us in this series. At this point, already, if you can believe it, our fourth session, our fourth installment in this series. And our assignment is this, embracing the other, embracing the other, our cultural diversity. Would you say that with me? Embracing the other, our cultural diversity. Say it one more time. Embracing the other, our cultural diversity. Jonah chapter 1. Our focus is going to be around verses 7 to 10. But let me begin reading together with us uh, from verse 1 to just synchronize ourselves with the whole story afresh. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Now, by the way, uh, just a, a, a detail on the side here. There were no such things as, you know, royal princess cruise lines in these days of Jonah. There, these were freight liners, these ships. They carried cargo uh, as part of the, the, the shipping and trade industry of the day. But they would take on passengers if you were willing to pay the money and you were willing to put up with whatever space they could give you. And so this is what Jonah does. He found a ship to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, away from the face of Yahweh. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship, into the sea, to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down. There he is again, going down and down and down. We see this. Into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And now our passage today that we're focusing on. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Notice the questions they ask him. On whose account this, has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people group are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And said to him, what is this that you have done? 
They're talking more sense to Jonah than Jonah had himself. What is this? What is the matter with you, man? What have you done? Are you crazy? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Jonah, the story, not so much the person, though the person, of course, is very involved. This is the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah calls us to face up to certain things. It asks of us questions, probing questions, questions that we're probably not going to be all that comfortable with. Jonah asks us to answer, first of all, who are you? Who are you? Say that with me, will you? Who are you? The mariners on the ship conclude that the storm was a punishment for sin, and they cast lots. I told you last week, casting lots, it was a common practice, similar to, to you know, drawing straws, uh, throwing the dice kind of thing to, to determine certain outcomes. And, and so they cast lots to discover whose wrongdoing it might be. And God, by His grace, though it, this is not something He advocates as a practice of faith, he, he speaks through it amazingly. And they conclude that the lots indicate that Jonah is the one in the wrong. And so they begin to pepper him with questions. Essentially, they're asking Jonah three things. His purpose. What is your mission? They ask. His place. From where do you come? What is your country? And his ethnicity. Who are your people? They're asking him about more than simply his career, his vocation, his profession, his background. They're asking more than that. These questions they're asking him, beloved, are identity questions. Every person's identity, every one of us in this room, all of us, our identity has multiple aspects to it. Who are your people? That question probes the social aspect of who we are. We define ourselves not only as individuals, but also we define ourselves by the community that we are a part of. By our family, by our ethnic group, by our people group, whether that ethnicity uh, be Asian or African or Aboriginal first name, whatever it might be, we define ourselves by that community, the political party with which we identify most closely. Who are your people? then where do you come from points to the physical place and space in which we are most at home, where we feel we belong. What is your mission? That question gets at our meaning and purpose in life. All people do many things. All of us. We do many things. We work. We rest. We marry. We travel, we create, 
But what are we doing it all for? All of these provide an identity. A sense of significance. A sense of security. These questions of the seamen to Jonah show a good understanding of how we constitute our identity. To ask about purpose and place and people is an insightful way of asking, who are you? Say it again with me. Who are you? Then, Jonah, the story, asks us to also answer not only who are you, the story of Jonah asks us to answer whose are you? Whose are you? Turn to the person beside you and ask them that, will you? Whose are you? The sailors in the story, however, are not asking these questions of Jonah simply to let Jonah express himself as we do in modern Western culture. And I know we have different cultures represented here in, the, in, our, in our living room here today as a family, but in, Western, in modern Western culture as we have come to know it even as we've immigrated here, they're not asking questions of him for him to simply express himself. In modern Western culture, we ask questions. We just, you know, want to let people uh, express themselves, and, and, and we kind of want to get to know them. But this isn't why they're asking. Their urgent objective, these sailors, is to understand the God who has been angered so that they can determine what they should do. In ancient times... In the ancient Near East, every ethnic group, every place, and even every profession had its own God or gods. Some of you can relate with this, given your cultural background. Often, in, we, 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 see, we see glimpses of this even here in our Western culture as we've had different people groups immigrate here to us. You go, you go into various uh, cultural foods restaurants of the cultural cuisine that we have even in here in the Vancouver region. And you'll often see little shrines in those restaurants. That's a, that's a, that's a kind of an example of what we're talking about here. Every, every area, every ethnic group, every place, every profession had its own God or gods. And to find out which deity Jonah had offended, they did not need to ask, what is your God's name? All they had to ask was who he was. In their minds, human identity factors were inextricably linked to what you worshipped. Who you were and what you worshipped were just two sides of the same coin. It was the most foundational layer of your identity. Perhaps today, we might be tempted to say something like, well, you know, people no longer believe in the gods and often don't believe in any god at all. So this superstitious outlook here in the story that your identity is rooted in what you worship is irrelevant for us today. But is it? Perhaps... To say that 
And to conclude with that idea is to our own folly. Could it be that in so doing, we commit a foundational error? Of course, as Christ followers, we would agree that there are not multiple personal, conscious, supernatural beings fastened to every professional place and people group. We know as Christ followers the one God, the one true God. We understand that there is no actual Roman God named Mercury, the God of commerce, to whom we should burn our animal sacrifices. Even so, even though we have this understanding through the revelation of Jesus Christ, no one would argue that financial profit can become a god. An idolatrous, unquestioned, ultimate goal for either an individual life or a whole society. I don't think any of us would question that. We see evidence of that all around us in our world. Perhaps even in our own lives, if we're honest. This devotion to financial profit in an idolatrous fashion to which persons and moral standards and relationships and communities are sacrificed as a result. We know that there is no Venus, the Roman goddess of beauty and love. Nevertheless, isn't it interesting? Untold numbers of men and women and young men and women and our teenage culture are obsessed with body image or enslaved to an unrealistic, unrealizable idea of sexual fulfillment. Therefore, the sailors here are not altogether wrong in their analysis. Every one of us must say to herself or himself, I'm significant because of this. And I'm acceptable because I'm welcomed by them. But then, whatever this is, and you can fill in the blank, and whoever they are, and you can fill in the blank again for your life, these things become virtual gods to us. And the deepest truths about who we are, we identify ourselves with that and them. We value ourselves based on that and them. And so they become virtual gods, idols that we bow down to, if you will. They become things that we must have under any circumstances when sex and money and relationships and possessions and position and power command allegiance that is unconditional and that cannot be questioned they function for us as religious objects, counterfeit gods, even salvation for us. The Bible explains to us why this is the case. Imago Dei, it's called 
in the Latin. Imago Dei. We image bearers. We are image bearers. We bear the image of God. Humankind bears the image of God. Every people group, every race, every ethnicity, all of His creation, we bear the Creator's image. It may be scarred and marred. It may be broken and bruised. It may be buried deep. But we bear His image. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that. We are made, image bearers made in the image of God. There can be no image, how many know? There can be no image without an original of which the image is a reflection. We are a reflection. We bear reflection and resemblance of our Creator. To be in the image means that human beings were not created to stand alone. We must get our significance and our security from something of ultimate value outside us. To be created in God's image, watch this now, means that we are to find and we can only find our whole and true humanity only in Him. Nothing else and no one else. Only in Him. And therefore, we must live for the one true God or we will have to make something else God. If we don't realize this, if we have not been enlightened to this, if our eyes have not been opened to this in the revelation of Jesus Christ, then what we do, because we have this yearning built into us, we make something else that God. And we orbit our lives around that. that. That thing, that person, that relationship. The mariners with Jonah knew that identity is always rooted in the things we look toward to save us. The things to which we find our ultimate allegiance. So to ask, who are you, is to ask, whose are you? Would you say that again with me? Whose are you? They're asking, who are you? But they're also asking, whose are you? To know who you are is to know who or what you have given yourself to. It's to know who or what controls you. It's to know who or what you most foundationally trust. It's to know whose you are. Are you His? That's who you're meant to belong to. And then Jonah challenges us to face our spiritually shallow identity. So we have these questions, who are you, whose are you, these questions that drill down into our identity, who and whose we are. And after these questions do that, we are then forced, 
in many ways, to face our spiritually shallow identity. Jonah, he finally begins to speak here in the story. In the boat, he has stayed as withdrawn from the unclean pagans as he could. Hidden down in the bottom of the boat asleep. And when the captain comes and wakens him and urges him to pray to his God, Jonah responds with silence. Even then, only when they cast lots and the lot is cast and the ship's entire crew now are down in the bottom of the boat confronting Jonah, do we finally get a response from the reluctant prophet. And while the question about his ethnicity comes last in the list of their questions, Jonah, it's interesting, Jonah answers that question first. He says, I'm a Hebrew. He says that before he says anything else in response to their questions. In a text such as this, so sparing with words, it is significant that he reverses the order and puts his ethnicity forward and out front as the most significant part of his identity. As we've seen already, our identity has several aspects or layers. Some of which are more fundamental to our person than others are. For Jonah, since he was one who identified himself first ethnically and then religiously, we may infer that his ethnicity is foremost in his self-identity. This is the first thing he's thinking of. He puts it even ahead of his faith. You see, while Jonah had faith in God, it appears not to have been as deep and as foundational to his identity as his ethnicity and his nationality was. Are you tracking with me here? Many people in the wor world today tack on their religion, their faith, as an appendage to their ethnic identity. It's just something added. Their ethnic identity is first, and then their faith is tacked onto that. Their ethnic identity is more foundational for them. For example, one might say, why, of course I'm a Lutheran. I'm German. That's a good example of what I mean. Even though that person, he or she, never attends the church at all. That's how they would respond. They never attend. They're not active. They're not, not in any way. But if you were to ask them, well, of course I'm a Lutheran. I'm German. You see the association and the order? For Jonah, if his ethnicity was more foundational to his own self-image than his faith, it would begin to explain to us why he was so opposed to calling Nineveh to repentance. The prospect, think about this with me, the prospect of calling people of other nations to faith in God 
would not be appealing to him under any circumstances with his, his, his spiritually shallow identity. It, it, it would not be appealing at all. Jonah's relationship with Yahweh was not as basic to his significance as his ethnicity was. And that is why when loyalty to his people and loyalty to the Word of God seemed to be in conflict, he chose to support his nation over taking God's love and message to a new group and a new community. Are you seeing this? God is putting Jonah in a situation where now his ethnicity and the way he places his identity in that is coming toe-to-toe with his faith. The place, the one in whom his identity is to truly be found. Sadly, many Christians today, many in the church, and I'm not just talking about our local church, I'm talking about the church that Jesus is building, many today exhibit these same kind of attitudes. Many of us. The same kind of outlook that Jonah has. We're having our identity challenged here, our spiritually shallow identity. This is not merely the result. These kind of attitudes and outlook are not merely the result of poor education or a short-sighted worldview or cultural narrowness. Rather, our relationship with God through Christ has not penetrated deeply enough into our hearts. Just as is the case in Jonah's life here in the passage at hand. God and His love is not their identity's foundation. Of course, ethnicity is not the only thing that can block the development of a Christ-like understanding and worldview. For example, you may sincerely believe that Jesus died for your sins, and yet your significance and security can be far more grounded in your vocation. So it's not just ethnicity. could be your vocation, your career, your achievements and financial net worth. That's where your identity is grounded more than in the love of God through Christ. How many know what I'm talking about? As men, we're particularly guilty of this. Women as well, but not the tendency isn't there so much, although with the changing of popular culture, that's probably changing too. But just generally speaking, have you ever noticed that when a group of men get together, one of the first questions they ask each other is, is not, you know, they're, they're not deep, feely kind of questions. They're, they're, what do you do? So what do you do? 
So what do you do? We want to know what you do, because as men, what you do determines how valuable you are. But when a group of women get together, usually, generally speaking, again, I know there's exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, a group of women, like, they're immediately going deep. They're jumping into the deep, deep end with each other, you know? It may not be our ethnicity. It may be our vocation, our career, our achievements. We value ourselves based on what we've done, on the trophies on our shelf, the plaques on our walls, our financial net worth. Then we ground our identity in God and His love through Christ. You see, shallow, superficial Christian identities explain Please hear me, beloved. Shallow, superficial Christian identities like this, as I've just, just, just described as we draw from the story here, explain why professing Christians can be bullying, bigots, racists, and greedy materialists addicted to things like reputation, addicted to things like control and beauty and power and prestige and pleasure, or filled with anxiety, selfish ambition, and prone to overwork. All this comes because it is not Christ's love and compassion, but it's the world spirit's power and approval and comfort and control that are the real root system and foundation of our self-identity. We've planted our identity in those things rather than in Him. Jonah not only asks us who you are, but it asks us whose you are. Can we go a little further here? Jonah drills a little deeper still. As painful as this may be for us to consider or think about, if you can't say amen, say ouch or something. Jonah also challenges us to face our self-blinding identity. Shallow identity? Who are you? Whose are you? Who do you identify? What's your identity? Shallow identities and then self-blinding identities. This superficial shallowness that we've just talked about also prevents us from truly and really seeing ourselves, from being fully self-aware. We have no true self-awareness. Here's Jonah. A prophet of God with a privileged position in the covenant community who is at every turn obtuse. He's blunt. Not, he's not a very sharp... He's not the sharpest knife in the drawer here. He's arrogant. He's self-absorbed. He's bigoted. He's foolish. And yet we can't judge him because if we're honest, we must confess that we're often like him. He doesn't seem to be aware of this at all about himself. He's clueless to it. 
It, indeed, it seems that he's, he's more blind to his flaws and his incongruence in his life than anyone around him. It, the mariners seem to see this. What's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? What have you done? Wake up. Pray. Cry out to your God. They have more perception than he does. How can this be? Jonah reminds us of another biblical character, doesn't he? You know who I'm thinking of? In the New Testament, Peter. Peter also had a position of privilege in the faith community. He was one of the intimate friends of Jesus. He walked with Jesus himself. And he was quite proud of the fact that he did. He liked to tout that around, wear it like a badge of honor. If, if you know the story, and most of us in the room are familiar with it, before Jesus' arrest, Peter swore to Jesus that if persecution came, though the other disciples, those weepy, spineless Dudes, though they abandon you, Jesus, I will never do so. Jesus could rely on Peter. He, Peter said, in effect, Master, my love and my devotion for you is stronger than any of those other disciples. I'll be braver than everyone else no matter what happens, Jesus. You can count on me. I'm there for you, man. I got your back. However, we know that Peter turned out to be a greater coward than the rest. Denying Jesus publicly three times? How could Peter have been so blind to who he really was and how he really loved Jesus? You see, that's why Jesus asks him again, after the fact, when they're around the fire and he comes back to them after his resurrection, he says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you really love me? Lord, you know, you know I love you. You see, Jesus was seeking to get Peter to see himself for who he really was. And finally, when Peter faced up to his blindness, the blindness, the self-blinding identity. And he said, Lord, you know I want to love you the way you want me to love you. But I don't know if I have it in me. I, I really don't know, especially after all that's happened, whether I can love you that way. And then Jesus says to him, good, good. Thanks for finally acknowledging that. Thanks for finally seeing who you really are. Now we can work together. Feed my lambs. You see, when we seek to carry about us this shallow, superficial, self-blinded identity, spirituality, God, God can't work with that. It opposes him. It opposes his purposes. We're seeing it in Jonah here. 
Peter's most foundational identity was not rooted and grounded as much in Jesus' gracious love for him as it was rooted and grounded in his own commitment and love to Jesus and what Peter thought that was. Peter's self-regard was planted in the level of commitment to Christ that he thought he had achieved. And Jesus was drilling down into Peter and saying, Peter, it doesn't work that way. It's not about what you've achieved, what you've done, what you've accomplished. It's about, can you receive and believe my love for you? He was self-confident. He was cocky before God and humanity because he thought he was a fully devoted follower of Christ. And those other guys are just a bunch of wimps. I'll stand with you. And there are two results, loved ones, two results to such an identity as this. The first is blindness to one's real self. We all have blinders. Peter had blinders. We have blinders. Turn to your neighbor and say, you've got blinders. There's no self-awareness. If you get your sense of worth from how courageous you are, if that's where you place your sense of worth, it'll be traumatic to admit to any cowardice at all. Well, you know what I'm talking about. If your very self is based on your own valor, your own ability, your own accomplishments and achievements, any failure of nerve would mean there would be no you left. Are you seeing this? That's Peter. That's Jonah. That's you and me. You would feel you had no worth at all. Indeed, if you base your identity on any kind of personal achievement and goodness or virtue that you think you have, you will have to live in denial of the depth of your faults and your shortcomings. You won't have an identity secure enough to admit your sins, to admit when you're wrong, to admit your weaknesses to admit your flaws and your contradictions and the incongruence in your life. Because your identity is based in everything that you think you've done and you think you've accomplished and who you think you are. Rather than seeing yourself as He sees you, the one who knows you best, and loves you most. And loves me most. Then the second result is hostility rather than respect for people who are different. When they came to arrest Jesus, even though Jesus had told them numerous times that this had to happen, what does Peter do? He pulls out a sword nonetheless and cuts off the ear of one of the soldiers. And Jesus said, come on, how many times do I have to tell you? This is not how I do things. 
Beloved, any identity, please hear this, and I think it's on the screen for us as well. Any identity based on your own achievement and performance is an insecure one. I'll say that again. Any identity based on your own achievement, my own achievement, and performance is an insecure one. You are never sure that you've done enough. That means, on the one hand, that you cannot be honest with yourself about your own flaws, but it also means that you always need to reinforce it by comparing and contrasting yourself and at times even being hostile to those who are different from you, who you fear are better than you. This was Herod, as we read about earlier in our Scripture reading. Peter and Jonah were proud of their religious devotion. There was a self-righteous pride that they had about themselves based on their self-image and on their own spiritual achievements, though it was full of blinders. And as a result, they were both just that, blind to their flaws and sins, and they were hostile to those who were different from them. Jonah demonstrates no concern for the spiritual plight of the Ninevites nor any interest in working together with the pagan sailors for the good of all. He treats the pagans not just as different, but he treats them as other. Us in them. In Christ there is no other. In Christ there is no us in them. In Christ, there is us, and we, and one. And Jonah is engaging here in several kinds of exclusion. Several kinds of exclusion. And so Jonah challenges us finally here to face our excluding identity. Who are you? Whose are you? Shallow identities, self-blinded identities, and then identities that exclude others. What Jonah is doing is what some have called othering. Say that with me, othering. He excludes all others outside his group and his periphery of the good and the righteous and the accomplished and the good guys. Like Peter, Jesus, you've got me, those other guys. I'm stronger than all those others. Othering, to categorize, this is what it is, othering. It's to categorize and label people as the other. It's to focus on the ways that they are discriminately different from oneself. To focus on their strangeness, if you will. They're different than me, and so therefore they're strange. They're weird. And to reduce them to these characteristics until they are dehumanized even. 
We make it a matter of us and them. We then can say, you know how they are. You know. You know, we can do that, but you know how they are. So we don't need to engage with them. Rather than a Christ-like embrace, this makes it possible to exclude them in various ways. By simply ignoring them, or by forcing them to conform to our preferences and beliefs and practices, or by requiring them to live in a certain poor neighborhood, or or by just driving them out altogether. As a faith community, here, Jonah challenges us to embrace and even celebrate our cultural diversity. Our diversity of class and pedigree and whatever crazy name we want to put on it. Instead of creating us and them and othering, we are called to embrace this. This challenges us here, especially in our context, which is very much one of diversity. Jonah challenges that with us. So, beloved, we are now beginning to see that Jonah is in desperate need of the very grace and mercy of God that he finds so troubling. The grace and mercy of God that God is calling him to minister to others, he himself is having a difficulty accepting. Under the power of God's grace and mercy, Jonah's identity will have to change. As will ours. Would you stand together with me? As Frank and the team come. And if I can ask you to just 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 to invite you to close your eyes and in these closing moments of our time together remove every hindrance and distraction that may be coming at you in this moment and parents if we can just help with our children and just in keeping them still and beside us what is the holy spirit saying what is the holy spirit whispering into your spirit your heart right now, my heart, my spirit, our hearts together as a congregation.